So like I said, we're in part five of this series called Possessions. And it's a series on money. It's a series on the things that we own, the possessions we have, and the money and the currency that we use to represent those things. And the idea there with this series is that your possessions, they're things that you own, but very often in the human story, the possessions that we have end up possessing and owning us. So what do we do as Christians, as people pursuing a spiritual life, pursuing the kingdom of heaven, desiring to be both internally in our homes, in ourselves, to be more like Christ and externally to help share and shape and co-labor with God to make that a reality in the world around us. We can't do that without talking about, thinking about, expanding our, our imaginations about what we do with our money and with our possessions. So this week and next week, we're talking about these passages in scripture around the forgiveness of debt. And uh, this week we're looking at Deuteronomy 15, and I've named this sermon Divine Debt Forgiveness. Really thirsty this morning. Um, I, uh, I, I can, when I was thinking about this, I was trying to, to uh, think about different, different times where somebody's owed me something and how I felt about that. Uh, because I, right away, straight away, when we think about debt, think about financial debt, we usually think about when somebody owes us something, uh, we think they need to pay us back. But when it's the opposite and we owe, we hope for some kind of leniency a lot of times. We hope maybe that debt's forgotten. We hope we can kind of get around it, that kind of thing. Um, so we tend to have more uh, grace and mercy when we're the one in debt as opposed to somebody else. Um, I, I remember having a roommate back in my, in my early 20s and, and the guy was three months behind on rent. And uh, I saw him somebody was in a car and they were talking about something and it was like somebody else was in need or needed, he was contributing to something and he opens up his wallet and he pulls out like 50 bucks and gives it to this guy in the car. I don't remember the situation. I just remember how furious I was. I remember having not been that mad. I couldn't even remember ever being that mad because this guy was a freeloader, he moved in, he pretty much immediately stopped paying rent, it was super irresponsible. And, um, and I, I remember after that, uh, not too long after that, I went into the backyard and I like, I, I broke some wood. I broke like a two by four on the ground. I was just furious. And to me, that, that memory reminds me of how incredibly, uh, visceral this experience about debt and ownership and these types of things can be in our life and our world. And it seems to be just something we can't get away from as human beings. When somebody says, hey, you owe me, like that's, that's a big statement to make, depending. I mean, it kind of depends. If it's like friends and they like got your coffee and you're like, hey, you owe me for next time or you get it next time. That's a little bit different. That's kind of light. But if a boss says to you or somebody in authority over you says, you owe me, 
That feels really bad a lot of times. That can feel really terrible. That can feel really burdensome. And so as we look at this scripture this morning, my whole goal in us looking and talking about this scripture is that we expand our imagination about how we think about debt, possessions, ownership of things, that we just can suspend our belief that things are the way they are in the world because that's the only way that they can be or should be. Because that's what the writers of this text believed. They believed that although things look a certain way around debt, ownership, who's poor, who's rich in the world, they did not believe that was the way that it should be or the way that it could be, all right? So that's the text that we have here in front of us today. And I want us to go ahead and jump in and I want you to do your work. Your hardest job is to expand your imagination and suspend your judgment about the things that you already hold to believe to be true about these subjects. Okay, verse one. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. All right, already, okay, what we think about debts has gone out the window in the first verse here. Now, in the context that this was written, probably around the 7th or 6th century BCE, um, this was still considered the ancient world, the ancient Near East, and there was something that they would have recognized from this, although this is way, this is way higher level of debt forgiveness. In the ancient Near East, the kings, when a new king would come into power, in order to gain favor with those who were also wealthy and also had power and things like that, they might do like a one-time forgiveness of some debt. They might say like, well, you owed the crown this amount of stuff, but I'm a new king and you're good. You don't have to, your, your debt's gone. Don't worry about it. Or the previous, uh, the previous magistrate um, may have taken some people's land, okay? And this new king comes in and says, hey, you get your, your land back. So um, th that was kind of the connection that the people might have had to this kind of debt forgiveness, it was basically like when a president comes in and there's a financial crisis and Wall Street has totally screwed things up and banks have made loans they know they can't get back and they're going into bankruptcy and the economy's upside down and they say, you know what? So many presidents, Republicans, Democrats, they all do this. You're too big to fail in our economy. Your debt's forgiven. It's messed up. It's really messed up because then the people that suffer the most are the lowest economic class, which is what this is actually about. That's what this text is about and the debt forgiveness. I wanna give you an example from our, our, our world right now. Um, there's something called the Earned Income Tax Credit, the I the EITC, anybody heard of that before? If you pay it, if you, if you like the news, you read the news and watch the news a lot, you might be hearing a lot about these things, you might qualify for it yourself. But it's basically to help people who make less than $1,350 a month, 
a month. So you can quickly multiply that by 12 and see that's, that's really not a lot of money, okay? Um, especially if you've got a family, you got kids, you got things like that. Well, in, in, uh, in the past few years, the amount that the IRS, the, the percentage of, of uh, investigations, audits, um, in, tw in 2018, for example, was 3,800 or 382,000 people, okay? Uh, 382,000 recipients of this earned income tax credit were audited, okay? That accounts for 43% of all the audits on individuals in 2018. 43% of the audits were done on people living at or below the poverty line in our country. And most of the time, those people made a mistake because the form's so complicated. But their assets were frozen and it, it, it wrecks their lives. Just as an, as an example, um, oh, and by the way, if you look at a map of the United States, the counties with the highest audit rates the demographics are poor, rural, mostly African-American, and in the South. Those were the highest level of audits took place. So for example, um, this woman named Natasha Smick and her husband, they were one of the people audited that year. They live outside LA, and they saw their entire refund frozen in February of 2018. Imagine that if your whole total of income was less than 1,300 a month and your refund is frozen in February. So they did their taxes early. For a couple who earned about 33,000 in 2017, that $7,300 refund was big money. And 2,000 of it was from the, from the EITC. When it didn't come, Smick said she had to abandon plans for catching up with her credit card debt, of course, other debt. How else could you be surviving outside of LA on that amount of money? And I want you to hear this quote. I know this is a lot. I'm just trying to give you some perspective on this. It's a lot of information uh, from the Senate's fi uh, Senate Finance Committee, uh, this quote about this. While the wealthy now have an open invitation to cheat, that's been a huge thing that's come out recently, low-income taxpayers are receiving heightened scrutiny because they can be audited far more easily. They don't have the power and the resources. They don't have lawyers and things like that. All it takes is a letter instead of a team of investigators and lawyers, um, said Senator Ron Wyden, the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee. We have two tax systems in this country, he said, and nothing illustrates that better than the IRS ignoring wealthy tax cheats while penalizing low-income workers over small mistakes. Okay. So when we look at this passage and you hear all debts forgiven on the seventh year, this was already happening for rich people, just like it is today. You're rich, oh, we're gonna let you slide because you know what? You've got this business, you've got these resources, we can help each other out here. We can keep the power, we can keep the wagon circled, and the poor people have to pay for it. Their lives are what's affected by it. This was true then and it's true now. 
And so the provision in this scripture, which by the way, when it says it isn't followed is sin. It says that when this doesn't happen, the poor and the needy will cry out to God and those who, who are able to and do nothing about it are guilty of sin. We love the law. How many, how many, how many of the, the, the Christian leaders who are in charge of these things and say, oh, Bible and this and Christianity and all these things. Well, this is some really indicting stuff right here. Not to mention the other passage about loan forgiveness in the Bible that we'll look at next week from Leviticus is called the year of Jubilee, which Christ instituted in the beginning of his ministry. He said, this is the year of Jubilee. This is his year when the prisoners are set free, when the debts are forgiven, when the blind see. All of these things are happening. We are supposed to be right now 2,000 years into years of Jubilee. And yet we have ballooning trillions of dollars of debt. We, huh. you know the comedian uh, Michael Che, Saturday Night Live? He's like, I try, to, I try to follow the news, but I don't understand it. They say we owe China like $3 trillion, but I don't owe China nothing. I owe Sprint $98, but I don't owe China anything. But we've got this incredibly, it doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, when you're talking about $300 trillion of debt, what does that mean? How do we even quantify any of those types of things? And so in this passage, there's something really interesting happening that I want you to understand. Because we don't live in that world. We don't live in the ancient Near East. There's no way we can take that and just drop it into our life and our world. Not that any of us even have the power to do that in the first place. But the, the book of Deuteronomy is so interesting because Deuteronomy means second law. It's a, it's a repeat. It's a new version of the same things that are in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, part of the Torah. And it's written uh, by people, they're writing in the name of, of, of Moses, but it's hundreds of years after Moses lived, and they're writing to people who are no longer connected to the promised land. They're no longer there on this land. They're living in exile. They're spread out different places. They're living under Babylon and Assyria and these kinds of things. And they're living in a world that's very different. And so the writers are imagining, they're reimagining, as we'll see next week too, what does it mean for Sabbath to happen, for land to be returned, to ha be happening uh, to the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel in this context that's so different. And so part of the transition, the transformation is from getting physical land back that was in their control to the forgiveness of debts to forgiveness of financial debts because the currency had changed in their current situation from land to financial resources. If you're still following me, the whole point I'm trying to say right now is that our job is to read this text, to interpret it for our time, to expand our imaginations about what it means to possibly live this way where we are not holding on angrily to debt, where we are not living and spiraling out of incontrollable debt and where the poor suffer the most from this. That's our job with this text. That's what our imaginations are here for. That is what it means to love the law of God in this instance and in this situation. 
Because here, listen to verse three. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. So in the seventh year, seven is always the year where things are to lie fallow, where Sabbath is to happen, where rest is to happen. Six, year, six days you work, the seventh day is the day of rest, all the way back to creation, all the way back to the way God created the world. At the seventh year, the ground was to lie fallow, but a lot of these people didn't own anything, any land, and they had no choice because they were living as second-class citizens. So even if they wanted to, they couldn't let the ground lie fallow. Some of you are in jobs like that. You need a Sabbath, you need rest, but you're required not to get that rest in order to keep the job. And it feels like you have no choice. And in many instances, in many moments, you don't actually have a choice between that unless you're choosing to be unemployed for that time. And so here in this passage, it's saying you may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt uh, to your fellow Israelite, that your fellow Israelite owes you. What the, the, what's happening here is the tribe of Israel is able to do something within their own framework, within their own boundaries, what's under their control. They can help each other stay out of debt. Okay? They, they can follow the law that was given to them by God through the prophets and the scribes of the time, and they can do that. What they can't do is change the whole rest of the system all around them. And yet they're still asked to do something. They're still asked to eliminate poverty within their means and their reach and those types of things. There's even here, there's something about this throughout this text here of different rules for someone who's a foreigner or not. We can't, we can't take that. We can't extrapolate that and apply that directly to our circumstances. It's a whole different situation. But we can know this, that there are limits in which we can work in which we can practice the kingdom of heaven. And that we, our job is not to say, well, it can't happen everywhere, so then it can't happen anywhere. It's the opposite. In fact, it's much, much so the opposite. If it can happen anywhere, that's good enough to try. It's, 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 a, it's a version of MLK's famous saying, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we work where we can, we work how we can. That's why it's so important for us to keep our imaginations moving, to keep us from saying what happened is that what's happening right now is the only way things can happen. And I'm not in control of everything, so I'm not in control of anything. Do you hear me on that? So in verse four, it says this. However, so Forgive all the debts every seventh year. But in verse four, however, there need be no poor people among you. Imagination right there, baby. For in the land of the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. You know, when we think about at least in the traditions I grew up, and we think about God blessing us, a lot of times it's some kind of like, 
if I pray hard enough, then God will bless me. And it'll kind of be like some magic thing that kind of fits outside of reality in some way. Like it has to like interrupt the way the world works, which we would describe as a miracle, right? Um, there's a different perspective, one here in Deuteronomy as well, that you see where it's, if you forgive the debts of the poor people, there won't be poor people. So your country and your people will be blessed. So if you obey my commands, you'll be blessed so that you don't, you don't get people uh, locked into, Robert shared about this a couple weeks ago, locked into these, these fast loan sort of um, companies that are everywhere that loan to poor people who they know can't pay them back, who they will forever be paying interest to. And those institutions are legal all throughout our country. They're all over our city right now. They know the only thing it's going to result in is the perpetuation of generational poverty. And so this scripture says in verse four, however, there need be no poor people among you and that God will richly bless you if you obey the Lord your God. But I've never heard a sermon preached in my entire life or a podcast on this passage of scripture, not one time, not one time. I've heard a whole lot about blessings heard a whole lot about financial blessings. I've, I've heard a whole lot about, you know, other laws and rules to follow, but I ain't never heard about this one. Anybody else? You ever heard that, those verses read out loud before in a church? Where does this kind of thinking come from here? How could they be so unrealistic to write these words? to have them in the scriptures, so audacious as to say that poor people can't stay poor for more than six years at a time, that they can have all, everything, they can have all their debt forgiven, they can strike out again, they can try again, they are not crippled from generation to generation to generation. My great aunt told me a story about her dad going to the bank on my black side and it he had to be there all day long to just, because if there was anybody else in that bank because he was black, he couldn't go up. So he had to wait all day long until everybody else had been seen just to go up and do a single transaction. And when that happens, that kind of wealth negation and the wealth that's being built on the other side, it just compounds over and over. And the prophets knew that. And they heard God say, forgive debts. God forgives debts. He forgives your debts. So you forgive others' debts. That sounds like a really famous prayer that I've prayed before once or twice. Mm. Where does this kind of thinking come from? Well, it, it, it comes from the very first verses and chapters of the Bible. Come from Genesis Genesis 2, chapter 8 says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Skipping ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I want you to notice 
what the man does here to get all the stuff he's got. Let's look back at those verses. Look, look at verse eight again, and I've, I've bolded a few words. And as Josh would say, then there's the unbolded words as well. <laughs> now, the Lord God planted a garden. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow, right? What about the next one? The next verses. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Whose stuff is all this? It ain't yours and mine. We, we were just put here in the garden of Eden. Enough resources for everyone a hundred times over. We, we, we have all these people on food scarcity right now, but we produce way more food than it takes to feed all the people who are alive on the earth today. Way more, countless more food, way more calories than is needed to feed all the people on the earth today. And they say, oh, but we can't get it there. What, what, but we can get a cucumber from China. We can get a tilapia from China and put it in Kroger, right? But we can't feed everybody. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. The Psalm says this, the earth Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The answer in the ancient Near East and today, those who climb the mountain, who have that power, perspective, and authority are the rich, the wealthy, the kings, the rulers. But not so in the scriptures. It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false God. That's where this thinking comes from in the Bible. That it is that, hey, you know what? People of Israel, you're gonna be different. You're not gonna have a king. But we really want a king. Okay, well, you could have me rule you, God be the one in charge, and there will be no poverty, and everybody will be fed and everybody will be cared for. If you want a king, I'll give you a king, but he's gonna take all your stuff. We still want a king. We won't be like everybody else. They got kings. All right, here's your king. Takes all your stuff. Here's the pharaohs of the world. Here's what they think from Ezekiel 29.3. I am... A, this is Ezekiel speaking though. I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among your screams. You say, the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. Um, Mark Mindyard sent me this podcast last week after the, after the sermon. He's like, this reminded me of, of the sermon uh, in some ways. And it was this podcast about, I don't remember any of the guy's names, but it's this guy's like cyberpunk guy. And he predicted all these things and that were going to happen with the internet in the future. And he was like, I didn't predict it. I just, it was already happening. You guys just didn't believe it was going anywhere. Um, but anyway, he talks, he talked about, he's met with multiple billionaires. Hey, multiple billionaires who can see the crash of our whole economy and society coming in the future. And you know, what they, you know what their plan is? It's to like go create a bunker in New Zealand or Iceland or something 
and basically set up their very own like pleasure dome. And they're trying to like figure out how to like um, not have their uh, employees like revolt on them when it happens. So they're coming up with all these scenarios and the guy's like, how about you be generous to your employees? How about you pay for their kids bar mitzvah? How about you uh, give them better benefits? But instead their minds are moving to try to figure out how in the world can I still keep acting like I own all this stuff and it's all for me and get out of the consequences when everybody else has to pay the consequences of that. Man, greed is an incredibly scary thing. I wish I was immune to it. I wish we were immune to it, that we could just say, oh, the rich people are like that, but we're not the rich people. We're, you know, we're just the good old, you know, blue collar kind of middle class people. Um, there's a scholar, Old Testament scholar uh, named Christopher J.H. Wright. And he wrote this really incredible and also very boring book called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. <sighs> right? That title just pulls you in, right? Yeah. And I read that. I read that book over like my Christmas break over a few years, like, back in like 2014 and 2015. So, you know, shows you how cool I am. Um, that's why I just saw Moana only like a month and a half ago, stuff like that, right? <laughs> Such a good movie. This is, this is what he says about this idea of ownership, of the, the text of the Bible, of the ethos of the scriptures and the kingdom of heaven and all these things. He says, there is no necessary or sacrosanct, that means like super holy and sacred. There is no necessary or sacrosanct link between what one owns or invests in the productive process, so the making of things, and what one can claim an exclusive right to uh, consumer's income in return. So what that means is you make something it doesn't mean you get all the benefits of making that product. There's no, there's no holy law that says that has to be true. There is a mutual responsibility for the good of the whole human community. He's speaking of what the ethos of the Old Testament scriptures say. And also for the rest of the non-human creation. Oh yeah, the bugs and the animals and the trees, which cuts across the idea that what's mine is mine and I'm entitled to keep and consume whatever I get out of it. Isn't that, isn't that the narrative in our world? Isn't that the unspoken idea that we're all kind of living with in our nuclear families and our, our houses right now? That like, if I make it, if I earn it, it's mine's. And it doesn't really matter how it affects anybody else. But this is antithetical. It's the opposite idea of scripture. And that's why we got all these poor folks in our city, in our country, in our world, because we're disobeying God. And we, are, we have highlighted and privatized sin to mean stuff that I do that only affects me and that I can go and privately get my confession and my salvation 
and get up out this joint when things look too bad. And in the meantime, I can live however my lifestyle and my money and my wealth allows me to live. And then I can get out of here like the billionaire when it gets too rough. Dang, I didn't even think about that before the sermon until just now. That just occurred to me as, as we were doing this work here together. And that's why we gotta have a part two for this one. This is what it says right here. In verse seven, we're gonna close on these verses because I like getting a chance to read some of these out loud. These verses, verse seven to 11. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. It echoes... It echoes Jesus speaking in the book of Luke, lend without expecting anything in return. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. So to say, I'm gonna lend somebody money, I don't think they'll be able to pay it back before the time I have to forgive them. This text is saying that if you think in your mind, I'm not gonna lend it to them because I know the year of forgiveness is coming. So I'm not gonna lend to them because then I won't get paid back. That that's sin. I never heard that in my life in a church. (laughs) Not that I can remember. 10, it says, give generously to them. Not, Not just a little bit, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. How could you do it without a grudging heart? Because it ain't ours. You were plopped down in the Garden of Eden. You are not independent. You did not earn everything that you have. That is a myth. It's bull. Okay? We're all plopped down in different places with different stuff handed to us. That's why God, if anybody knows that, it's God. And so God says, hey, the, the, the shakeup is going to be such that you're going to have to help each other because some people aren't going to want to. Give generously to them and to do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. And then what's this mean? 11, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. I thought there was gonna be no poor people. There should be no poor people. Said there'll always be poor people because everybody's always falling into some, somebody's always falling into some catastrophic situation, whether it be weather, whether it be the evil uh, ruler or leader who's monopolizing things, whether it be whoever it might be, the venture capitalist or whoever it is. So that means as somebody becomes poor, the relief is happening immediately. The relief is how every time there's a poor person, boom. This, this, is what the, this is what these guys thought could happen in our world. Wow. I mean, that's, I don't know about you, but it just gives me energy 
and, and strength and imagination to say, you know what I want? You, this is what I want right now in my life more than almost anything in the world is I want my capacity and my imagination, my, the capacity of my imagination to be saved and expanded to the level of these scriptures. That's what I want. I, I wanna be able to hold in my imagination the potential that God believed that human beings were created to fulfill. I don't want to be some dude thinking about, I'm gonna get what's mine and then I'm gonna find a way out of the mess. That's not the kind of salvation I'm interested in. And I want us to go there and do that together. So when we pray and when we come to the table, I want us to ask that of God expand our imaginations. The things that I've been thinking about money and possessions and wealth aren't big enough. It's not big enough. And bring other people into this room and let us expand our imaginations together and grow this thing and be co-authors with God in the kingdom of heaven and see it grow and expand in our city. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you believe we are capable of for the life that we could potentially live together as a community. Expand our imaginations, God. Expand our ability to hope, to pray, to be generous, to be kind. Amen.